Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think of a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one. Is it 139? <laughs> I think it is 139. Okay. 139. Wow. All right. Of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we don't even know what day it is because, <laughs> you know, it's thanksgiving weekend it's day 875 of quarantine and you know it's just been a weird year (laughs) anyway i'm karen peterson (laughs) there is no time there is no time time is a construct we've established Uh. this (laughs) and as always joined by lauren humphreys brooks hello how are you this morning I, I am pretty good. I'm mad about many things. So my <laughs> well, apologies. My apologies in advance if I am very salty today. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Saturday morning if you weren't <laughs> mad about anything. <laughs> just like, no, I literally, I literally woke up. It was just like, you know what? The concept of the Hitchcock blonde is bullshit. The concept <laughs> of the Hitchcock blonde, like I was literally lying in bed going like the concept of the Hitchcock blonde is a sexist concept that is primarily promulgated by straight male critics as an excuse for their fetishizing Grace Kelly and Tippi Hedren. It's just like, <laughs> fuck you, fuck you. Let me explain to you why the Hitchcock blonde is such a bullshit concept and is based on a throwaway line that Hitchcock says in the Hitchcock Truffaut book. So don't even. Mm. And yeah. if you'd like to hear more about that, you can listen to our Hitchcock episode where we address this. True, true. Although I don't think I, I ever was like, you know what, this is actually a really sexist concept that wasn't even conceived by Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Fucking men. Yeah. My big random thought yesterday was that I tweeted about this, but the Winds of Winter joke in Logan Lucky from three years ago. Did you ever see that movie? I did. I did. I did not know that specific joke, but I did see it when you posted it. It's like, huh. All right. Yeah. It's so Winds of Winter is the next Game of Thrones or Song of Ice and Fire book that George R. R. Martin has literally been promising for almost 10 years now. And there's a joke in the movie Logan Lucky about it. These guys are in prison and that's one of like, they, they fake this riot and um, that's one of their conditions for ending this riot is that they want the next they want the winds of winter book because it's not in the prison library and they're like um that's not published yet and they're like no he was supposed to turn it into his publisher two years ago according to wikipedia it's out there it's published and uh, yeah that movie was three years ago and there's still no book there so. never will be. He doesn't know how it ends. That's that's the fact of everything. He yeah. has no fucking idea how it ends. He's, I think not- it's- he's notoriously um, a, not a, well, I mean, a slow writer, yes, but he's also like, I guess, really filled with self-doubt, supposedly. And so he takes forever to write things because he just questions everything and edits himself a lot as he goes. And 
uh, I'm sorry, but it's been 10 years. It's, well, the last book, the fifth book was published nine years ago, like the week after the show premiered. And there's been no book since. <laughs> it's like, yeah. this is just ridiculous. I, I honestly do not think that he actually plotted out the entire series. And so he does not actually know how it ends. I don't believe that he knows how it ends. I, and and you've got this, like, and, and what I find really funny is that the HBO series has, like, ended before the actual yeah. book series has ended so i do kind of hope that he like he was like well actually that was kind of bullshit i'm gonna write a completely different ending <laughs> see that's what i hope too the story is and who knows about these things but the story is that he knew where he was headed with it and what the end point was going to be he just hasn't written out how he's getting there and that the the suppose supposedly he and um uh, Benioff and Weiss, the creators of the show or the showrunners, um, wrote everything out so that they would get to the same end point. They would just take different roads to get there. I'm hoping <laughs> that, yeah, Martin listened to all the fans who were like, this ending is stupid and went, okay, yeah, maybe I should change some things. <laughs> so who knows? But I agree, there, he's never going to finish it anyway. So it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Yeah. exactly so you know quarantine thoughts i think is is basically what this is yeah pretty much yeah it's so funny how things will just randomly pop in your head and then you're just like well wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway uh so we do want to spend a couple of minutes at the beginning of this episode talking about a certain movie that is very um very much in the conversation because it just <laughs> came out this week and um we feel differently about it, but I don't think we, <laughs> but I don't think we feel, I, I don't think that our, uh, eh, we'll just talk about it. Anyway, <laughs> if you have not seen Happiest Season on Hulu, um, skip forward about, I don't know, five to seven minutes or so, um, because we are going to spoil the crap out of it right now, which, I mean, if you're on Twitter, you already know all the spoilers, but... <laughs> But if you haven't had it spoiled for you, fast forward and and uh, then go and watch it. Ooh, I'm going to just jump in really quick and let you know that this conversation went a little bit longer than we expected. So if you don't want to be spoiled on Happiest Season, skip forward to minute 2625. Sorry. Anyway, um, so Lauren, you really liked this movie. I did. Yes. I did not. So here's the thing. When I talk about my feelings about it, or at least last night when we were talking about it, I was making it sound, I think it came across that I don't like the movie at all. I do. It's just that I sat down expecting this like sweet, happy, funny family Christmas movie. And that is not what this is to me. And so it caught me off guard and it made it really like, I don't know. It just, it made my experience watching it a lot less fun than other people had with it. So tell me why you loved Happiest Season. Uh, I, I mean, there are a couple of different reasons. I did find it funny. I think that it's more, you know, maybe it's being billed as a rom-com. I think maybe it should be more like a dramedy or mm -hmm. something like that because it's definitely comedic, but it's also very sad in a lot of ways. It's very much about um, people and not, not just in terms of the central relationship, but people pretending to be things that they're not in order to achieve this, this 
veneer of perfection, right? And, and I think that that's one of the things that the film does really well. You've got three sisters and an entire family, but particularly the three sisters who you can tell throughout the entire film that all three of them are concealing themselves in some way. Um, they're, they're concealing who they are because they're supposed to fulfill these particular roles that their parents have set out for them. And it ultimately is obviously very damaging for everyone and particularly for, uh, for Harper, who is uh, um, the Mac Mackenzie Davis character. And, but I think that it, I think that it did, it did that in a way that on the one hand was quite humorous, but then also was very real, I guess, because that is the kind of thing that people conceal from each other. And if you live in a family where you're constantly being told, you know, you have to present this particular look to the world and that has to be who you are. It winds up repressing all of these things that are messy and maybe are not the things that your parents want you to be or that your family wants you to be or that your society wants you to be. And I, I thought that the film did that really well. So I also really, I honestly, like everyone was just like, no, Abby should end up with Riley. And I'm sitting there going like, but, Abby's not in love with Riley like the whole story is that she's in love with Harper and that that's part of the point and it's about their relationship not about her deciding that that this woman isn't the one that she wants to be with I, I don't know I found it very odd that that was like the place that everyone was going I think that it's ignoring the actual content of the film versus deciding you actually want this to be a completely different movie than what it is yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And and I think that it was not set up in any way to be a film where Abby and Riley are supposed to be the ones that you're rooting for at the end. And I think that it I think that for some people the reason that they they want that is because it just feels like Harper sucks so bad throughout the entire movie. And I I think my issue like so for me watching it I sat down and I'm expecting this like happy cute Christmas movie because so many people were talking about like oh it's just gonna make you so happy and I'm watching this and I'm like 10 minutes in going this is this is really sad this is tragic like I I don't I don't know and so it, it just made my experience of watching it just different than I was much different than I was expecting but my problem with with the way that um, their relationship is presented Harper and Abby and especially the way that Harper is presented is that the very first scene we open on Harper lying to Abby and to the audience because she's begging Abby to come home for the holidays and trying to help her like oh no you can have you know because abby's got responsibilities and she's like trying to help her figure out how to make it work so she can come home and then the next day abby's like you know what yeah i'm gonna go and so then that just like you once you find out that harper's family doesn't know about them and about her um then you realize that oh we don't know anything about who harper really is and so then the entire movie is Harper continuing to hide this from her family and her reasons for doing that are completely understandable. And I think that, that, like you said, I think that the things that are going on with all three of the sisters, um, do, cr there's a lot of sympathy there because anybody who's been in 
like crazy family dynamics where there's any part of you that you feel like is not accepted by your family or anything about yourself that you feel like you have to hide. I think that's really relatable. But we spend the movie watching then Harper not really ever take Abby's side on things because of her family. And poor Abby is just kind of shoved to the side in a situation she didn't want to be in in the first place and is only there because in the very first time we met Harper, she's begging Abby to come. And so that I think is why for some people, for a lot of people, they see Riley as this like great alternative because she's just different and um, she she kind of is a little bit in some ways a surrogate for some of us watching it thinking like, man, Harper sucks. Riley's way better, but we don't know anything about Riley either to know that she's actually a better choice. And as you said, that's not the point of this movie. And that's not the relationship that, that Abby wants to be in. Abby loves Harper. She loves her to the point that she's about to propose until a, wrench gets thrown into her plans so it makes sense that she wouldn't suddenly abandon harper to run off with riley and in fact that would have made abby suck if that was what had happened ultimately so yeah i think for me it was not that it's a bad movie it's not it's a it's a good movie and i think that there are things about it that are really well done and there definitely are scenes that are very funny but it just, I think because I wasn't really prepared for what the tone was going to be, it made my first viewing of it very, um, uh, just, it just threw me off and it made it very like, I felt off balance. And so now when I watch it again and know what's going to happen, I can really just sit back and, and really watch the the nuances of the family dynamics and everything so yeah yeah i i think that the film i do think that the film misses a couple of beats and one of the places that it misses some beats is at the very beginning that it needs to show their relationship a little bit more yes um and and actually when you were talking i was thinking about like well how do we actually how are we actually introduced to them well so it's like it's harper and and abby going on a on a like a, a tour right of all the pretty christmas decorations but there is this exuberance to harper i think she's really excited she wants her girlfriend to be into christmas and to enjoy christmas mm -hmm. um and and there's this whole thing like oh let's you know let's climb up onto this onto the scaffolding and let's do this and let's sit on the roof and everything so there's this excitement and kind of danger to her and everything and that gets really tamped down when they go to see when they arrive at her parents house yeah um, and I think that that's what the film is going for, but maybe it needed to show it a little bit more that this is the person that Abby is in love with um, and did not know that this other side to her existed. And it was this side that is, has been basically concealing who she is her entire life. And, and I, I think that maybe if the film had spent a little bit more time on the early part of their relationship, on the part of them just being in the city and being together, um, it would have helped a little bit more to see the contrast then and how Harper changes when she's with her family. Agreed. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that there's, there's a, I, I also think one of the things, the reason why I actually, I didn't, I mean, I liked Harper in the sense that I don't think that she had, I don't think that she's trying to be nasty. I don't think that she is like, be, I don't think that she's being abusive or anything like that. She is really, really fucked up. 
And she has been concealing who she is for a very, very long time to the point that she believes that, you know, and the, the whole story with her and Riley about, um, uh, you know, her friends, they were fresh, they were what, freshmen in high school mm-hmm. uh, and her friends finding the love notes and Harper just basically throwing Riley under the bus, which is horrible. And also you believe it. It's, it's like, yes, this is what happens when someone is so terrified of being seen for who they are and of embracing who they are that they wind up hurting a lot of other people in the process and hurt themselves. And so I think that the arc for Harper is she is trying she's trying to have it both ways. She's trying to be this perfect daughter which she thinks her family wants, what she thinks she's supposed to be. Um, and at the same time, she wants to be the good girlfriend and, and the person that she is with. Abby and she can't be both and that's ultimately what comes to the fore when she's outed mm-hmm. right uh, well initially when when Abby says you know basically fuck you I'm leaving right we're done um and and I think that it, it speaks a lot to Mackenzie Davis's performance that the look on Harper's face is devastated it isn't like how dare you leave me it isn't you know it, it is it's like oh my god I am about to destroy the one relationship that actually means anything to me. Mm-hmm. And, and even then she can't completely bring herself to you know, be who she is basically. But so I actually found her arc and the issues that she was going through to be very believable. And while again, that, that does, that's not the same thing as excusing her behavior. Um, one of the issues that I've had with a number of the criticisms of this film is that people are like, oh, Harper's just a bitch, she should just leave her. And it's like, no, you're talking about, so you don't want these characters to be static. And I feel like a lot of the criticisms are like, she should always be perfect. Yeah. And it's like, no, this is obviously not a perfect character. This is in fact a very fucked up character who is not accepting who she is. And in the process is hurting herself and is hurting the woman that she loves, right? Yep. And, and that's not excusable, but that is human. And that is a part of her character. Um, so yeah, so I, I really liked it. I do agree that, you know, it's not this fluffy, happy, romantic comedy. I, I didn't really expect that it was going to be, to be honest, other than the fact that there were several people who were like, oh, it's so fluffy and happy. I was like, but it's about, isn't it about like a, a, a lesbian who's concealing the fact that she's a lesbian from her entire family and like her girlfriend is now there. And they're like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there are ways to do that funnier, I think, but it also doesn't need to be done for laughs because like, I mean, I think that you laid out really well some of the issues, not not issues with the movie, but the issues with, with these people, these characters, like who they are and, and especially with Harper. Yeah, she's a really messed up person. And I think that that is developed very well. Um, I know I mentioned when we were talking about this uh, yesterday, like with the ending, it that was part of what made me frustrated with the tone of the movie was like okay now everything's out in the open and everyone's just suddenly magically happy and they all got exactly what they wanted and I'm thinking like these people need massive amounts of therapy <laughs> like this isn't just suddenly everything's fine now and that's well, how it wants to leave you I I think in some ways the film and you know and we can argue about whether or not it, it ultimately works I think that what it's doing is that 
is that the issue at stake is the concealment. It yeah. is a, Harper is not a repressed lesbian in the sense that she's not pretending that she's straight to herself. Right. Right. She True. knows that she's not straight. Um, she's That's pretending true. she's placing this veneer over herself right it for her family so she's pretending for them and that's true for each of the sisters they're all trying to fulfill the roles that they think they are supposed to occupy and as soon as everything kind of explodes and they're suddenly like we can't occupy these roles anymore um that then things shift and you know and we can argue about whether or not it makes it even makes sense that the parents would then turn around and actually accept it but there is this sense throughout the entire film that the entire family has a veneer over it and it isn't it's everyone is performing for everybody else yeah even though they're not really performing for themselves yeah. and and i think that that's important i do have to say props to uh jane i loved jane the entire <laughs> co-writer by the way mary hall holland i think um and she co-wrote the script that's great and she is the most like the as soon as she was introduced i was like i like her she's trying too hard but i also really like her and i like the fact that at the end she was just like i don't have any secrets but i am an ally and it's just like <laughs> We we stand Jane. That's I love <laughs> I love the line that Mary Steenburgen says, like at the end when she's just like, Jane's the only one that turned out okay because we gave up on her. Like they didn't they didn't infuse her with all their pathologies because they just didn't think she was worth the trouble, <laughs> and she ended up the most balanced out of anybody. <laughs> yeah, probably the, definitely the most authentic, the most embracing of who she is as a person, and and she's ultimately successful as a result. Yeah, yeah, I I I really liked it, and and I definitely. Um, I think that some of the criticism, not the criticisms that you've made, but some of the criticisms that have been made about it are either unfair or they're they're demanding that the film be something, be a different film. Yeah, and, I think they're too reductive too. Like yeah. to just say, oh, well, Harper's abusive and gaslighting. It's like, well, <laughs> some of her behaviors could be looked at as abusive behaviors, but let's look at why they are and let's look at what the real underlying factors are here. Like, there's a lot more to it than that. You can't just say, oh, well, she's abusive and, and end the conversation because that's not that's not accurate. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, she has to be the one to decide that she's going to be different. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's important too, that Abby basically says, I can't do this anymore. Right. I, I love you, but I cannot be here. I cannot, you know, I cannot play the part that you want me to play. And so she leaves and that ultimately Harper has to decide, is she going to continue to play this part or is she, you know, does Abby actually mean more to her? And she ultimately decides that Abby means more to her. And I think that that's important that the film forces Harper to make those choices. Yeah. And um and and it doesn't send Abby running back being like never mind I absolutely adore you. It's it's like no. Harper actually sounds like I fucked up and I was wrong and I am so sorry and I am going to make this up to you as best I can and oh my god please forgive me, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. so we're not as far apart as it sounded like we are. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, no. I mean, we both like it, just we we like it differently. Yes, but you're still wrong. Um, <laughs> I am definitely not wrong. <laughs> it's, it's okay. You can admit that you're wrong, Karen. But I, I would if I were, but I'm not, so I won't. 
<laughs> and can we both just agree that Dan- Daniel Levi, Levy <laughs> he was fantastic. Oh, that's all yeah. I need to say, Daniel Levy. <laughs> he he was he was it was lovely to see him there, and it's nice to see him playing a different part because I've never seen him be in it, uh, anything other than um, Schitt's Creek. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed him, and I also liked him. Yes, I am Abby's heterosexual <laughs> ex-boyfriend, <laughs> and I have come here to get her back <laughs> it reminded me of of the human alcohol martini yeah it, it is that that's just like i must you're just trying to fit in <laughs> and the, the whole thing he's talking with what connor the the ex-boyfriend it's just like do you do you pump do you pump yeah i press like a thousand a thousand <laughs> just like a thousand yeah like a thousand weights <laughs> Uh, (laughs) poor fish (laughs) poor fish anyway so that's happiest season it's on hulu and you should watch it but definitely um don't go in thinking it's gonna be like elf (laughs) or anything like that like it's not it's not a hilarious uh you know movie it's a very different type of movie so it's good it's it honestly reminded me mood wise it reminded me of the family stone another christmas movie that i like quite a lot so yeah that was actually one that i kept on going back to and some some of it there was a little bit of me that that was like looking at some of the complaints like have you people never seen a family holiday movie because (laughs) that's what that's what family holiday movies are all about it's about like dysfunctional fucking families who are like fucking up their kids like have you never spent a holiday with your own family like i guarantee (laughs) everybody's family has stuff yes some families more than others yeah yes definitely so anyway uh yeah so happy season on hulu and now we're gonna talk about our topic of the week which is not happiest season um or christmas (laughs) that's for next week but um we are talking about neo-noirs this is our final november episode and um yeah so we wanted to to talk a little bit about um neo-noir which goes from basically the 1960s through today they're still sometimes they still make these uh these types of films and so let's start off a little bit by defining our terms of course we know that noir is uh some consider it a genre it's really more of a style um and it was predominantly movies in the 40s and 50s or noir and then neo-noirs kind of emerges in the 60s so lauren why don't you talk a little bit about the difference between noir and neo-noir so i think that we've we kind of pretty much defined noir uh in the last couple of episodes and talking about you know the this the stylistic choices of most noirs again we always have to remember that this is not um the, i think one of the key differences between noir and neo-noir is that in noir this is something that was defined after the fact right so the the term was coined in 1955 ref, to refer to a particular slice of primarily classical Hollywood films that are post-war films about 1946 through the the early to the mid 50s um and those were the films that were being talked about as noir so this is it's kind of a retroactive term it's looking back on 
uh, a set of films and saying like, okay, we're going to label these as a, as a particular style of film. Neo-noir, if you think about it, neo-noir is then post that definition. So, okay, so we, we're taking noir concerns and noir style and moving it forward. Uh, and and going into the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and all the way through to today. So neo-noir, I think that in the simplest terms, it's taking, and I will actually quote uh, a, a, a critic who said this, Mark Connard said, any film coming after the classic noir period that contains noir themes and noir sensibility. That is his definition of neo-noir. So what the fuck does that mean? Like, what the <laughs> So basically the it's fuck? noir movies that didn't happen in the noir time period? In the noir period, <laughs> which is a period that we defined in 1955 to refer to earlier films. So, okay. So <laughs> I, 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 think that, I think that what you have to come down to is that like film noir, this is a very, very fluid term. And what we call neo-noir uh it is is a big open question but you get some of the same tropes being repeated the concept of the femme fatale the use of light and shadow um the uh the hard-boiled detective a lot of stories about gangsters or crimes in the underworld um you know it's interesting no, a number of the french noir films that we talked about a, a couple weeks ago are exactly exactly following this period so i guess you could call them neo-noir only i would still call them noir but whatever yeah uh well some of the things there are a couple of things that i came across that were describing some of the differences and one was um and i was trying to figure out more about this because i wasn't totally sure that i understood what they were talking about and they didn't really explain it much but um, they were saying that noir typically it's more of a psychological um, uh, version of view of telling the story and neo-noir is more sociological so you have a lot more um, like social issues in other words yeah or like social, the attack the, the, the sort of sickness of the society itself versus right. sickness of the individual yeah exactly hmm. um, so I, I think there was more to it than that but um, I don't know and then the other thing that a couple of people talked about was how a lot of the noir films in the for especially the ones in the 40s and 50s they came out during production code time and yeah. so a lot of of um sexuality and things like that violence had to be um implied whereas yeah. in neo-noir it gets pretty brutal it gets more sexually explicit because I they could show a lot more things yeah, and actually, in some ways, it, in that in that sense, neo noir is actually closer to a number of the hard boiled novels that um, that noir is taking much of its inspiration, if not direct adaptations from, mm -hmm. because those novels generally, and if you go back and you re and you read like James M. Cain or uh, Dashiell Hammett or Raymond Chandler, it, well, it's not always like explicit necessarily. It is more explicit than what you see in in the films of the forties and fifties. Right. Um, so, uh, including you know, and one of the the most difficult things for noir is the uh, murderers are not allowed to get away with it in production code period, right? So if you've got a story, if you've got a noir story in which the main character is a killer, uh, you either have to make it work out so that it's, you know, she or he didn't actually commit the murder 
or you've got to punish them. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that's a major shift um, that simply has to be done in the production code. You don't have to do that anymore mm-hmm. uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Like the bad guys can get away with it. The good guys can get away with it, right? You can, there are characters that can commit murders, multiple murders sometimes and get away with it and escape. And I think that that, that is a good um, point that that's one of the major distinctions between the two. Yeah. Well, like, so we won't rehash it now because we just did a bonus episode, but the long goodbye, it couldn't have ended. If it had been made in the 50s, it couldn't have ended the way quite the way that it did. It would have had to, um, it would have had to be, yeah, it would have had to be altered. And yeah, uh, yeah. go listen to our episode on the long goodbye (laughs) if you want to know more about what we're talking about. yeah, so let's talk about some neo-noirs. There are a lot of them. Um, first of all, let's talk a little bit about, well, okay, so I was going through a lot of lists because I wanted to see, you know, what other people consider neo-noirs and like some examples of them. And so there were some that I was seeing on a lot of lists that I was like, oh, I don't know if I would consider that necessarily a neo-noir. And so I put them on the list and I wanted to ask you about it. Um, a couple of them, as I've thought more about it, I'm like, oh yeah, I think that definitely would be, but I want to know what you think. Um, so Nightcrawler. Uh, I, I have not seen Nightcrawler. You're so. not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> That's one that, uh, so it's the Dan Gilroy yeah. film. It's Jake Gyllenhaal plays this guy who uh starts like a basically a a los angeles news service type of organization where he's just like running out to try to be first on the scene to get the stories and sell them to the local news station um and uh that's one that i think it really does capture like the the tones and the um i don't know I I think that that was one that could be defined that way. It actually now, like the more I think about it, it makes more sense to call it a neo-noir than not to. Um, but it's, it was one that surprised me at first. Um, definitely the, you get that seedy underbelly of Los Angeles at night. Um, and uh, you see a lot of like the criminal element and stuff, but it's really, uh, the reason I wasn't sure at first was because I was like, well, this isn't about solving crimes. This is just about showing them and like getting them on TV and this guy who becomes so driven, but he becomes so obsessed with it that he kind of becomes part of the, the story himself. So um, bad times at the El Royale. You know, I, I was, I saw that on the list and I was thinking about it. I was like, I think that you can definitely make that argument. Um, I Many of the films that, that you have listed here, I would say, not necessarily neo-noir, but definitely noir influenced. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it's some of it is just a matter of the, the style, right? So it's, it's not even subject matter. It's the way that it's filmed. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that you get in Bad Times at the El Royale that you get in a lot of neo-noirs is this, you're, you're no longer filming in black and white, right? But you still get directors who are using contrast Mm-hmm. in the same way so particularly i always think of whenever i think of neo-noir i always think of um like the really bright neon signs of like the sunset strip or something like that yeah um or or you know the the bright neon signs of times square 
and that contrast between the brightness and the um you know the almost extreme brightness of the sun or of the signs and the darkness of the streets and that's that's i think where it falls so so something like bad times at the el royale where you've got all these intertwining narratives um you've got this very stark contrast between the daylight and the nighttime uh if i remember correctly there's yeah there's a lot of use of rain in that movie as well mm -hmm. And and because you've got all of that, it's definitely noir influenced. Although whether or not you would be like, okay, this is definitely a neo noir, I don't know. But again, if we're talking about it as a style and not necessarily as a genre, you might as well put that in there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, what I do know is that Drew Goddard needs to make more movies. Anyway, um... true, true. <laughs> He's better at what he does than Tarantino. There, oh, I said it. Yes. And when people try to say that he's like Tarantino, I'm like, don't you dare insult him like that. He's so much better. He uh, does some of the same things that Tarantino does, but good. Yes. He <laughs> is. He makes the films that Tarantino thinks he's making. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, collateral. That's, you know, that again, that's another one I'm like, is it? Yeah. I mean, yes, you I again, I think you can make an argument for it. I wouldn't necessarily say yes 100% like it immediately comes to my mind, but I I think and I think we'll get to this when we talk about some of the the much later films uh beyond like the 60s and 70s. I think there's a question about whether or not neo noir even still exists. Um so and collateral would probably and and bad times with the Royale would probably fall into that. Mhm. Mm yeah. That's one that I think gets probably rolled into the category because it is, again, it's LA like at night, CD underbelly type thing. It's crime. But I think because of the fact that you've got the story, the point of view characters in that movie, you do have a cop because um, you've got Mark Ruffalo is one of the, the people that's uh, gets to be the point of view character at some points but it's mostly this guy who just kind of gets dragged along for the ride and he's not really part of it until he's kind of forced to be i don't know i think that the problem is that if if you begin labeling certain films neo-noir <clears throat> at a certain point we're gonna be like well so does that mean that all crime films are neo -noir? exactly and i think that's what i was seeing a lot of was like well these aren't neo-noir necessarily these are crime movies or caper movies or because there's a there were a lot that i didn't put on this list but um like oh there were a bunch of of i was just like those are gangster movies those aren't noir you know so like the godfather was on here goodfellas and i'm just like well that's uh, that's different and I, I think that one of the things that you run into again and, and most of these films are contemporary films right yeah uh or rough you know vaguely contemporary you know stuff like seven was made much earlier but um but they're more they're into the modern period they're no longer classical and they're not like the 60s and 70s but what you're actually getting is a bunch of directors who watched film noir and that that style influences the style of their filmmaking mm -hmm. um and i think that that's important to recognize also is that you get what i i guess i would call them noir influenced films and part of that is because the style became so ubiquitous um, that it begins to get incorporated into everything from crime movies to uh, gangster films, etc. But it doesn't necessarily equal equate to okay, this is a neo noir now. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. 
So let's talk a little bit about international films, because I think that that's where things can get really interesting, because especially when we look at Asian cinema, um, particularly Japan and Korea, um, they tend to take a lot of influences from American films, but they also influence American films. Mm -hmm. So the so that's that's really fun. I have not seen enough uh of course i never have but i've not seen enough like films international that would fall into this but um but you have definitely seen more than i have so i i got into uh last year i actually got into watching a number of the japanese noir films ones that are labeled japanese noir um on uh on the criterion channel and so i watched stuff like the rusty knife or rusty knife um occult is my passport uh take aim at the police van um tokyo drifter stuff like that and and tokyo drifter i think is much more in the neo-noir section and again part of it might simply be the fact that you know the other films are filmed in black and white (laughs) and so it's more like oh that is noir because it's in black and white but this is definitely neo-noir because it's in color i don't know um so I I found them I find them really interesting because they are these, you know these these are po- very post-war Japanese films. Uh, you could even put things like the Bad Sleep Well, the Kurosawa film, or um, uh, High and Low into those categories. Um, and but what I found really interesting is that they're they're obviously heavily influenced by noir style and by sort of the the hard-boiled detective or the tough gangster who's like you know been betrayed by his organization and things like that but they at the same time they are very japanese and very much obviously concerned with post-war japan and then post post-war japan so japan rebuilding uh in much the same way that you know the godzilla movies are about are you know allegorical depictions of japan and and the issues that they're dealing with in the time period um so they're great films i mean i think at at the end of the day some of my favorite noirs are quickly becoming uh the japanese noir films like i love tokyo drifter um uh take aim at the police van is so convoluted i still don't completely remember what happens um (laughs) But it's they're they're very different kind of highly stylized films, uh, but quite different from like the French noirs or anything like that. Because the only thing that I can describe is that there's a very definite Japanese sensibility and Japanese structure to the films. Cool. Yeah, I need to, I need to see them. I need to see more movies. I mean, I I will tell it's you right now, like, like <laughs> yeah, go go onto the Criterion Channel and just search for. Um, like search for film noir and Japan and see what pops up because most, and most of them are very good. Uh, but, and, and you could definitely see the noir influence in them. Cool. Yeah. One that I have still not seen and I really, really want to, I just keep not having time for it um, is memories of murder. The Bong Joon-ho film, which is a Sacrilege! I know. Um, but it's they just released like a new um was it I can't remember who put it out, but um it's like available where there are movie theaters open. It's out in theaters right now, which I think is really cool. I just 
yeah i haven't had a time i've been trying to watch other stuff like happy season um (laughs) (laughs) but anyway yeah um that's high on my list uh, Memories of Murder is interesting because again, it, it goes into that, okay, well, do we count it as a neo-noir? Do we count it as just a crime movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think I think visually it definitely has the the noir influences and, and you can see where he's sort of building off of a lot of noir tropes and, uh, and a, a lot of, again, the use of light and dark, the use of chiaroscuro, um, the use of color in particular, that film makes a spectacular use of color and I'm not gonna spoil it, but it is fucking terrifying. <laughs> nice. um, this, this was a film I actually saw when I was in college and I saw it in a film class that they would show films at night. And so I would have to walk home um, from like the main, main buildings of my university down this like, dark bridge oh. that would go into the um the the neighborhood that I was living in and and I and it was raining at the same time and one of the things that is a major point in the film is is rain and it was the most terrifying experience I was just like oh my god I'm <laughs> going to die someone is going to kill me <laughs> well I'm glad that nobody killed you thank you uh yeah but it's it's a that's a good film. That's a very good film. Watch it with the lights on. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I I plan to watch it this coming week, so I'll finally have some time. Um cool. So all right. So let's talk a little bit about um what are some of your favorite neo noirs? Like we could break this down into decades, which I kind of have just mm-hmm. for purposes of keeping things straight. But just what are some neo neo noir films that you love? Uh, I mean, I love The Long Goodbye, which we've talked about, so I'm not going to go through that again. Chinatown, um, I think, is, is pretty much the quintessential neo-noir, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I do love that film. I've spoken about my Roman Polanski issues before, <laughs> uh, but it, it is a great film. Like, just as a film, it is a great film. And uh, one of the things I really like about the, the neo-noirs of, like, the 60s and 70s is that they're self-consciously noirish i think and so you get actors like john houston showing up in chinatown and john houston is of course not just a a, a excellent actor but he made some of the quintessential noirs um you get people like uh uh robert mitchum showing up in the friends of eddie coyle which is, and again, Robert Mitchum, you know, out of the past, uh, Cape Fear, et cetera, those are very quintessential noirs. And so I like that bridging, I think, of the generations and this sort of self-conscious referentiality that goes into it, while also these films being able to stand on their own um, without, you know, necessarily knowing that or embracing it. So I, I really dig that. Uh, I like Clute. I like um, uh, Killing of a Chinese Bookie uh what other ones so can i think of i mean i think that if you get a little bit later you get into stuff like the coen brothers films blood simple um la confidential stuff like that Mm -hmm. yeah i think one of the very first ones i ever saw was the devil in a blue dress um with denzel washington which i have not seen oh my gosh so it's funny because it's another one of those movies where i don't really remember the details of it but I remember how much I loved it. And that was like 
where my crush on Denzel Washington started because you know I mean he's Denzel but oh he's great in that um and yeah it's it's that very like you know it's I think it's set in the 40s and it's got that whole like detective thing like it really feels like a uh, in a lot of ways it feels like a classic noir story so it's that one's a lot of fun you should you should watch that I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere right now i, I think it was kind of recently yeah i went looking for it and it, it's on it was on prime but you have to rent it okay. uh and so i don't think there's there wasn't any place that i could find when i the last time i went looking for it where it was free to stream um but yeah that's one that it, that has like always been a gap and people refer to that film so many times and i'm just like i still haven't <laughs> seen it because i can't find it <laughs> oh, yeah so next time it's available you need to watch it because it's really yeah. good um so yeah that's one i love of course yeah chinatown and the long goodbye are both great um i really like um the player we we mentioned that one when we were talking about mm-hmm. long goodbye um that one's a lot of fun and then some that i think i consider neo-noirs from this century are movies like zodiac um which is actually i think david fincher's best film and i will fight anybody who disagrees with me uh <laughs> and um kiss kiss bang bang mm-hmm. um with robert Downey jr and val kilmer that one's a lot of fun and um yeah those are some of my favorites there are other ones that i i've also seen like they're i would say that they're still making some of these like motherless brooklyn i think which came out last year i would say that that definitely qualifies as a neo-noir um it's just not a very good movie (laughs) (laughs) well i think that one that we need to talk about a little bit is brick yes yes um because johnson brick yeah ryan johnson and and it's the Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. uh, which I always find so. I think it is the Maltese Falcon, isn't it? No, no, it's 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 um, it's a Raymond Chandler. Farewell, my lovely. Uh, is that it? Now I can't remember. It's been too long. <laughs> I think it's. I want to say this. Farewell, my lovely. And now I'm going to say that, and it's probably like Murder My Sweet or something like that. But yes, it's it's a very recognize. It is actually a recognizable noir story. Like it's based on a book. Yeah. Um and uh but the language in that i think that that's what sets that film apart from so many other neo-noirs is that it gets at that hard-boiled language that is so quintessential if you've read any hard-boiled detective novels sometimes especially Dashiell hammett yeah uh, sometimes it's completely confusing how the what the fuck they're saying (laughs) they're just like what is happening who's talking um but uh, you know what are they even trying to have a conversation about but it's like that that hard-boiled patter in high school mm-hmm. and i just love that contrast and i love the fact that it makes it that he makes it work um like everything fits so well yeah ryan johnson is a very talented filmmaker and um I mean, we know this because he made the very best Star Wars film, but also just in general, he's made really, really good movies. And so much of what he's done has not been um, wholly original. It's been inspired by other things, which I mean, every filmmaker makes stuff that's inspired by something, whether they want to admit it or not. But um, but his work tends to like like this. I mean, this is definitely inspired by classic noir 
films and books and, and stories, he is one that understands how to take those things that influence him and inspire him and turn it into something that is different and that is original. And, um, and that's why he's so good at what he does because yeah. he's not, his films don't feel derivative. They really do feel inspired. And that's he, a big difference between him and someone like Ari Aster. Yeah. And actually, by the way, I just looked it up and, and at least according to, to Johnson, it's based on a number of different Dashiell Hammett books, but is heavily based on the Maltese Falcon. So I was oh, okay. the first time. It's been a long time uh, since I've seen it. So I couldn't remember for sure. That well, makes sense a, actually now. Yeah. Yeah. It's also based on like the Glass Key and Red Harvest, uh, which I've read Red Harvest. I have not read the Glass Key, but um, Hammett is, is a very he's a great writer, uh, but he, he can be difficult to read partially because of the use of the kind of language that you get in brick. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, but one of the things that, that I agree with you that Johnson does really well is that he's doing this sort of riff on these stories without mocking them. It's not a parody or a satire, but there's still, there's still an undercurrent of humor to it. And there's like this, it's, it's not even pastiche. It's, uh, it's, it's, like this mushing together of these concepts but still coming out with something that is very unique yeah uh he puts together a cast that really feels like they fit together well in this mm -hmm. type of world as also um you've got joseph gordon levitt and i'm trying to even remember who else is in the movie now but um it's just everything about it he he really um, from from that element to the writing the production design and everything about it uh, the cinematography especially um, it really does uh, yeah it's a it's a really good it, it feels in some ways like homage but it's also just it has its own place in this lineup of films as well yeah yeah that, that's I mean I, I that's kind of what I was trying to say with you said it better. That's kind of what I was trying, trying to say when I was saying it's not really pastiche because it's using things but still doing something very different with them. Yeah. Um, and I, I also like some of the little elements. So like the, you know, the, it's it's high school. So the cops are the principal uh, and the teachers and you've got the gumshoe who is, you know, this, this high school kid, you've got the enforcers who are like these jocks, you know, and so you, you have this great kind of back and forth between the, the concepts of hard-boiled detective fiction and high school. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that movie's great. If you've never seen it, watch it. If you have seen it, but it's been a while, watch it again. I'm going to do that. <laughs> Um, what are some others we should talk about? There was a question that we were discussing about Chinatown versus The Long Goodbye, and now I don't remember what it was. Uh, I don't remember what it was either. It wasn't which one was the superior movie, but which one... I don't remember. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I, I did want... There was one that I wanted to mention, and now I am, like, blanking on it. Um... Oh, fuck me. Sorry. <laughs> it, was, it went into my brain and then it went out the other side. Mulholland Drive. That was oh, what yeah, I wanted yeah, to yeah. talk about. Yeah, Mulholland Drive, which is my favorite David Lynch movie. 
Um, and that is, is very neo-noir, but also not, it's almost taken as a whole, it's almost people putting themselves into a neo-noir. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that, that one's, I mean, it's any David Lynch movie is difficult to categorize, but there's so many of his films generally, and you get this in Blue Velvet as well, um, are influenced by noir archetypes and by noir images. And, and again, the use of light and color. Uh, is, so Mulholland Drive itself is, Mulholland Drive I think is also interesting because the, the primary, <laughs> the femme fatale in some ways is a man. Uh -huh. <laughs> um and and whose name i constantly forget <laughs> say it i need to hear you say I it i can't say it i can't say, say it, it. No, that guy you know that guy i don't know what's his name james or jack say it. jack you can do it jack there. The, jack the rucks <laughs> That's as, that's as close as you're gonna get. <laughs> for people who were not there for the whole Lauren pretends that Justin Thoreau doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't pretend that he doesn't exist. I cannot actually physically see him. Uh, I was just I telling look. someone the other day about that time that I interviewed him and I took a picture at the end and I had told him that you didn't, <laughs> that you didn't think he was real. And so he had me take a picture by myself and send it to you. Props oh, so funny. Props to the man who does not actually exist that he was he was like, oh that's funny. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Anyways, uh for those of us for those of you who have not listened to this uh podcast from the very beginning, Justin Theroux does not exist. <laughs> like he's not a real person. What I see when I look at the screen is a blank space. So I'm sad for you because Sorry. he's a beautiful man and he's really nice. And I'm, awesome. certain that he, I'm certain he's a lovely person. He's just not real. Um, <laughs> he's a mass hallucination. Uh, but anyways, yes. So in some ways, the femme fatale is, is a, a man in that film. And you've got this, this story that's actually a story of a lesbian relationship. Um, and I, I don't know. Yeah, like it's, it's difficult to categorize Mulholland Drive, obviously, but it's kind of an interesting and unique addition to neo-noir if you look at it in that light yeah yeah i don't really have anything to add about that because i've seen this movie like four or five times and i still can never remember what it's about <laughs> uh see again it's a very i mean it's yeah it's david lynch so yes. i love it one of the things i love about it actually is that throughout most of the film i was like oh this is kind of weird like the first time i saw it i was like oh this is kind of weird but like i get it i'm following it like i know what's happening and everything and then like the last 20 minutes of the film happened i'm just like what the actual fuck uh -huh. like this doesn't uh, what no first of all no second of all what <laughs> and then i saw it again and i was like okay i get what's no i still don't get it <laughs> yeah and well and it's funny because it's one that i'm always like when i watch it i enjoy it while i'm watching it i'm like yeah, yeah this movie's so good and then it's like after it's over i'm like what was that about though <laughs> <laughs> i like that it is like a hallucination so yeah it's it's sort of it's fun in that way yeah uh, <laughs> um one other that i would like to talk about 
is another recent movie and the reason i want to talk about it is because it's female director and those are very rare in the neo-noir um realm and that is the movie destroyer by karen kasama and this is another one that at first i thought well that's not really a noir film but then the more i thought about it the more i decided that it is i have not seen it oh i thought you had Uh, no i'm a bad person it has been on my list for a very long time i think ever since it came out and i just still have not gotten around to it interesting okay well so i didn't here's the thing i didn't really love it (laughs) and it's definitely not close to my favorite film from karen kasama by the way it's um available on hulu um but it's but i think that she definitely captures that grittiness the um the mystery elements i think are interesting because there's a lot um it starts off with a murder um nicole kidman is the main character in this and and she's clearly she's like it's it's interesting because it really is kind of this flip on the the noir neo-noir um storytelling because it's like this time the rough detective hard-boiled detective person is a female it's a woman it's nicole kidman and um her having to kind of go through this backstory of stuff that she's seen and things that she was part of to try to solve this current murder it's really interesting and um the costumes are cool it's got kind of this 70s feel to it even though it's i'm pretty sure it's contemporary i think it takes place now um but it just has those elements where it just really feels so like part of that world um I yeah I had some issues with the story itself but uh it definitely has a lot of really fun elements to it so and again like I said it's so rare to find a female director making movies like this that it's definitely one that I think people need to see whether you love it or not (laughs) yeah it, it really is like difficult to find female directors who even um who even use the same kind of style I mean I now the Hitchhiker, I think, could definitely be be read as a, a film noir, mm-hmm. um, and we talked about that briefly, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago. But but it is interesting that, it, and in some ways, it's very. This is a genre or a, a style, I guess, that is very ripe for women to address it, yeah. because you know. And we've talked about it in the past. We talked about the femme fatale and the use and this sort of weird dichotomy between the between the representation of women in film noir as being both women getting a great deal of power right and they have a great deal of power men die for them literally Mm -hmm. particularly stupid men um (laughs) but on the other hand they're like these these evil you know creatures that lead that lead perfectly decent men astray kind of thing um uh, but in terms of this, I was actually thinking about two neo-noirs that I quite like, uh, and one of them is Body Heat, which is a sort of semi-adaptation of Double Indemnity, mm-hmm. but with some very notable differences. And uh, and one of the things I like about that film is Kathleen Turner is the, the fatal character in that, <laughs> a young Kathleen Turner, you know, um, and, and she's perfect for it, obviously. But uh, that film in particular, like, addresses, 
one of the elements of film noir generally that I, I enjoy and I also find contemptible, uh, which is that the men in film noir are fucking morons. <laughs> They're so stupid. And you're sitting there going like, I mean, my favorite film, Pushover, where it's just like, Fred McMurray, she is going to try to kill you. Because <laughs> you are like 46 and she's like 21-year-old Kim Novak. And no, she does not really want to bang you. Like, I'm sorry, dude. I'm sorry. 21-year-old Kim Novak does not just desperately need your hot middle-aged body. Uh, <laughs> no, it's really mean. Sorry. Uh but it's true, like I've said it before, but I, that's one of the elements they kind of use in body heat. Uh, and it's just like, dude, dude, she's gonna fuck you up. Like, don't even, don't even think about, oh, look, you're a fucking moron. You're a fucking moron. <laughs> um, but there's that. And the, the other film that is kind of related to it in, in a similar way, and that it's about really stupid men is uh, Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers film. Mm -hmm. And that's one I think that's interesting because the femme, the quote femme fatale in that doesn't really like know what's going on. She's just like, oh, you're like going to kill my husband for me. Okay. Like, I didn't even know you were going to do that, but all right. <laughs> and yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. <laughs> Love it. Well, the last thing that I wanted to just kind of briefly talk about were, um, a couple of films that are part of neo-noir like they definitely have those influences but they're they're sort of mixed with other genres um the two big ones that i was talking about were sin city and um blade runner which i guess 2049 would also or whatever the sequel was um would also be counted but i really just didn't want to talk about that um no one should. <laughs> nope. But I was trying to think of some other ones too. Um, but but yeah, I think that especially like with Blade Runner, it's interesting how that really is a a neo noir film. It definitely has all those elements of that style, but it's also mixed with this sci fi um, uh, story, which I, I think it leads to a really interesting. Uh, I think that's a, a well-done blend of genres, I guess. Yeah, and and actually, when you think about it, a lot of film noir, uh, and uh, you know, we're talking here about neo noir, and so what does that what does that mean exactly? But there's a lot of noir influences a lot of different genres, and um, even in like the the 40s and 50s, there are films that were eventually referred to as Western noir. Mm -hmm. um, which are literally westerns but they have film noir topics and they use film noir techniques and it's the same thing with something like uh, Sin City which is self-consciously doing this like extreme version of neo-noir yeah um, or, or Blade Runner which I think is is just as self-conscious but it is not as obvious about it uh, and, and it isn't intended to be but the aesthetics and everything then of course you get into like okay it was, it's the aesthetics but it's also cyberpunk um, which is in itself heavily influenced by noir. Mm -hmm. So I, I, one of the things I like about noir, because it isn't a genre, is that it is so, it has so many distinctive styles that you can kind of bleed it into a lot of different genres and kind of give it space to grow. So you can take on these noir topics or these noir images without, you know, having to tie yourself to a particular time period or a particular genre. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. 
I was trying so, to think of some other more like contemporary ones. Like I know. Pulp fiction, I, was saying, I guess. Oh yeah. Some of Tarantino's stuff I get can definitely be read as as neo noir. He popped up on a lot of the lists too. I just didn't include him because I don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> and on this podcast, we only talk about things we like. <laughs> uh, like how Blade Runner 2049 is a piece of shit. It's <laughs> oh, so bad. <laughs> It might be neo-noir, but we don't care because it sucks. <laughs> it actually very much is, but yeah. It, it is. It's very like, sci- like I say, cyberpunk, sci-fi, neo-noir, mm-hmm. etc. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, but we hate it, so fuck you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, any others that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to just kind of shout out or any recommendations that you have for folks? Oh, recommendations, I think, you know, and I'm very good on like the 60s and 70s ones. Uh, Definitely check out The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which I think doesn't get as much play as a lot of other neo-noirs. Yeah, I haven't seen it. But it, it was on Criterion Channel for a while. I don't know if it still is, but it's it's worth it. It's a, it's Robert Mitchum, honestly, at his best. And for a long time, I did not like Robert Mitchum, but this was the film that made me kind of reevaluate him. Uh. I really love that Killing of a Chinese Bookie, the the John Cassavetes film. Um, obviously, Chinatown and The Long Goodbye are, are great. Blood Simple, uh, the remake of The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is actually a readaptation, but it stars Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, and it is it is something. If you've ever wanted to see Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway have sex on <laughs> a flat on a like a breadboard where there's just flour everywhere. Um, that sounds messy there's your movie it actually is a good like very sort of steamy neo-noir yeah those are the ones I I mean like I said I love Blood Simple I love Mulholland Drive uh, Body Heat which I am always like I find this very enjoyable for stupid men reasons (laughs) (laughs) So the Friends of Eddie Coyle is streaming on CBS All Access and Canopy. Killing of a Chinese Bookie is on HBO Max, which is still not on Roku. Um, Better get and, their asses into gear before uh, Wonder Woman is released. Oh, I'm going to be pissed if I don't get to watch that one from home because hello. <laughs> Movie theaters are closed, guys. Don't do that to LA and New York. Come on. Um, yeah. And then, oh, I was going to look up. I know The Long Goodbye is on Hoopla because that's how I watched it this last week. Um, Chinatown is on Stars. Body Heat's not streaming for free anywhere, but you can rent it. And I think same with Blood Simple. And uh, I will also give another shout out to the the like i said the japanese noirs that are on the criterion channel um and there's some great ones particularly i think particularly tokyo drifter if you're looking for neo-noir um but some of the others like uh like rusty knife or take aim at the police fan are really well done films awesome yeah um i would just add to yours because i think that you have a great list there's actually a couple of those that i want to check out too but um I would add Devil in a Blue Dress for sure. Um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is just a lot of fun. Um, Although it's funny because like a couple of times in the movie, Val Kilmer refers to Robert Downey Jr. as a kid and he's like 40 when he did it. So whatever. But um, (laughs) 
and then Brick. Definitely watch Brick and Destroyer. So, yeah. I'm going to check out Destroyer soon, I think. Do it. Finally. Yeah. Let me know what you think, because oh. <laughs> my feelings on that film are complicated. <laughs> like, I have an appreciation for it, but I don't love it. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, Nicole Kidman's great, though, because she's always great in everything. So. I mean, I'll probably love it because you're wrong about things. So. <laughs> I'm usually not, though. I'll just like come back. I'll just like come back to Karen and just be like, "By the way, Karen, I fucking love Destroyer, <laughs> and the fact that you don't like some things about it is incorrect, <laughs> objectively." Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that will forever crack me up, and that really opened my eyes to the way poll quotes work, is when I was with the Word Circuit, and that came out our writer mark johnson did the review for it and he hated the movie absolutely hated it thought it was terrible but in his review he said one positive thing about nicole kidman so guess what happened they pulled that quote for the for the (laughs) marketing so he is forever tied to that movie that he hated (laughs) wasn't that recent movie that actually used all of the the worst quotes like all of the terrible reviews i'm trying to remember um there was one that like actually actively marketed itself using the bad I remember reviews. Remember Mother did that and they used like the positive and the negative reviews, which was actually pretty clever because yeah. they, they were using the fact that that movie was so divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, there was that one. And then there was <laughs> the infamous Scotty marketing campaign that the Scientology, the church put out. <laughs> I was like, don't listen to pe- trolls behind a keyboard meanwhile their members are like trolling all the (laughs) the people who love scientology anyway that's neither here nor there um but their tax exempt status should be taken away anyway um yeah so i think that's a good list for people to check out and enjoy and let us know what some of your favorites are tweet us email us message us in some way let us know some of your favorite neo-noirs and some that you maybe have watched because of our recommendations or other ones that we didn't mention that you think we should check out so yeah um and speaking of contacting us there's lots of ways that you can do that uh we wanted to first thank our patrons for helping make the show possible and helping us keep things going that's matt heather adriana michael james katie cariata mason matthew michelle monty nanina nicole robert sharon steve tau and will thank you so much for your support if you would like to join them and become a patron of the show it's patreon.com slash citizen dame we are going to uh in the next week or two we're going to have a whole new tier system laid out so uh if you want to kind of hold off and see how that's going to look uh that's fine um we're excited about some of the stuff that's coming up uh, we also do have our Ko-Fi, which is ko-fi.com uh, slash citizen dame, where if you don't want to commit to being a patron, you can just throw in a couple of dollars and um, that helps support us and, and keep all of our bills paid. We do have our Zazzle store, tis the season, to do some holiday shopping and you can get some face masks for your friends and family and yourself. We also have t-shirts and some other fun things there. Uh, Zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod. 
You can also email us directly, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website, citizendamepod.com, where we have reviews. We will have more reviews coming soon. Um, Lots of good stuff coming there, too. You can also reach out to us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. So thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Came so close to saying bye, bitches. <laughs> Kara told me you know where M's at. Uh-huh. And why are you looking for M? She asked for my help. Uh-huh. Well, listen, man, I got plenty on my plate without dealing with some jilted X. It's not about that. Well, whatever it's about, act smarter than you look and drop it. Where's she at? You better get while it's good. Heal it now, dig. Throwing at me if you want, Hashhead. I got all five senses and I slept last night. That puts me six up on the lot of you. It's easy, bro. Where's M? when she called you man came to and freak told me to shake you if you came by said you'd only make things worse deal with whatever this ain't about and drop it tell him i want to see her so if she wants my help or not it's her business but i want to hear it straight from she her today she knows where i eat lunch and stay out man